Our scripture reading for today will be 762. It's justification in the hymnals. It's up on the screen. I'm going to read the fine print, and the congregation will follow with the bold print. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of glory of God, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for our, the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have been now justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so but only in God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have now received reconciliation. I don't know if you looked really carefully at that scripture reading that was just read, but it was a combination of passages from Romans chapter 4 and Romans chapter 5. Um, we have covered, to some extent, Romans 4 and, to some extent, Romans 5. So what I'm going to do today is go into the last half of Romans 5. So just open your Bibles to the book of Romans. Let me just find the page reference on that. So everybody can have a Bible in their hand. That's pretty important to Seventh-day Adventists. And I know that all of you here this morning are not Seventh-day Adventists, and I want to make things as clear as I possibly can. So I may do, a, before I actually start preaching, before you start recording, before I pray, I'm going to have a few little introductory remarks. That's on page 1753, 1753 with the Bibles in the pews. I'm delighted to see Pat here again. I keep saying your name, Pat, and I know I'm going to remember it if I do that. And then I see some other guests with us today whose faces I've not seen before, right? You did tell me your name, but I've forgotten already. Wanda. Okay, I have a way of reminding myself. I'll tell you later how I remember that. Um, there was a movie, wasn't there? With one, uh, but I was thinking of something else. Um, 
So Wanda's here, nice to have Wanda here. And I'm sure there are other guests here today who I've not had a chance to talk to. Welcome to the Anderson Seventh-day Adventist Church. And um, we're going to be blessed today. We're going to connect with God through the book of Romans. If any book God has used over the rolling centuries to bring revival and reformation to churches, it's the book of Romans. Over and over again, we find the book being used by God uh, in revivals. And if the church ever was in a day and age when it needed revival, a real display of the godliness of God, it's this day and age in which we live. Okay, let's bow our heads. Gracious God, we thank you for the, as we sang this morning, give me the Bible. Thank you so much for your holy word. Uh, we would be totally clueless to know what truth is if you had not revealed these things to us. And yet some of the revelation, Lord, is more challenging than others. There are verses that are easier to understand, and there are some that are more challenging. And we're dealing with a challenging, a very challenging one, something the most challenging in the whole of Scripture. So truly we need the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to explain all the ins and outs. Just help us to get the main point this morning. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his amazing uh, display of love on Calvary's cross. And as we've been reading, Lord, uh, through him, we are made right with you by trusting in him. So help us all to keep our focus, not on the roses, not on the flowers, but on the Lord Jesus Christ today. In his name we pray, amen. Even though the flowers are nice. Okay, take your Bibles, Romans chapter 5. Have your finger in there because we're going to go through those verses this morning. But I want to remind those of you that have been here before to go all the way back to chapter 1. I'll do this really quickly because we have spent some time on this a few weeks ago. But this is just by way of reminder. It's by way of context. Paul is always, almost always in his writings, sustaining an argument. And it's pretty hard to jump in the middle of the argument and get the flow. So I'll help you to get a little bit of the flow that has led us to where we are today. All right, right in the beginning of the book of Romans, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for what? Let me hear you say it. What does your translation say? Romans 1.1. 1, 1. The gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand. It is what the book of Revelation calls the eternal gospel. There is only one gospel. Now, I know that there are Christians that look at different dispensations and so on, and it's actually more confusing than it is helpful. There is one way of getting saved. It wasn't any different for Adam, for Abraham, who we preached on a few weeks ago recently. Was it last week? I forget. And, and we're going to mention Adam today, or for Moses or for anyone else. There's one way of getting saved, and that is by doing it God's way. And it's all about belief, faith, and trust. Take any one of those three words. I'm sure they're somewhat interchangeable. It's putting your confidence in the provision, in the promises that God has made. Okay, so that phrase, the gospel of God. Then go to verse 16 of chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Well, why should you be, Paul? Well, pe people do ridicule it. That could be one reason. He could be ashamed. 
But he's not ashamed because he knows it works, because it's going to avert the wrath of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now, I don't know if everyone believes this morning, but if everybody does believe this morning, you will all know something of the power of God. It's the same power we talked about when God created this earth. In the beginning, God created. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It is the power of God. It's the good news. Gospel means good news. The good news of Jesus Christ that He came to this earth and totally defeated sin, death, the devil, everything negative. For the salvation of everyone who believes, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, as it is written, the righteous will live how? By faith or through faith. And if the word trust is better for you, it probably is in the way that we use everyday language, then run with that. We're trust. We're putting our confidence in the provision, whatever that might be, that God has provided for us so that we can get saved, which simply means to be in a right relationship with God. So when you think of righteous, you don't, I'm not even going to ask you how to, how to spell it. It's a long word. Just think right with God. Righteous, right with God. Just, just right with God. And then I spent some time going briefly over the wrath of God, because that's in verse 18. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, this is the opposite of the, the righteousness, the grace of God. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men and women who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, those of you that have read this book before, you know that he takes the rest of chapter 1, he takes chapter 2, and a good part of chapter 3 to explain what he means by the wrath of God. And it essentially means God's anger, God's distaste for sin. So there's two camps here, there's two groups. You're either under this gospel of God, so to speak, or you're under the wrath of God, right? Right? Just two groups. No one's sitting on the fence. No one can sit on the fence with these matters. Sitting on the fence just makes your eyes water. It doesn't work. What works is to be on one side or the other. We're all on one side, on the wrath side, by virtue of not being on Christ's side. No one is born into this world. No one lives their life in this world neutral. We're either godless and wicked and enemies and sinners and ungodly, or we're righteous by faith. That's the only options. And I think that will become, that will be explained, but in a very different way this morning by comparing Adam and the Lord Jesus Christ. But just get, at this point, just get these two things in your head. It's either wrath and anger of God against sin, which means destruction. Sometimes you hear about hell and hellfire. You hear, hear about the second, there's lots of terminology that's used, total 
alienation, total separation from God, or it's in a right relationship with God. It's just one or the other that we're talking about this morning. And then in chapter 4, the great chapter that we spoke briefly on concerning Abraham and using Abraham as an illustration, an example of somebody that is right with God. And he made it very clear there, not because of his effort, his works, or anything else, but just because he trusted these incredible promises that God gave him. Just think real briefly about those promises. As the stars in the sky, your descendants, is there a lot of stars? Way, way more than most of us can comprehend. And, and, and greater than the, the sand on the seashore, the grains on the seashore, right? So, so, so the reason I'm mentioning that is not because we've mentioned it before. I want you to think of abundance this morning. I want you to think of something really, really big. Because we're going to make a comparison between Adam and between the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, back to Romans 5. Verse 1, I preached a sermon on this. Since we have, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, so you know that the topic is still justification by faith to some extent. Now, what he does when he explains any topic, any subject, he will, in a very short, short, pithy way, he will give you maybe his main thesis. Do you remember I said when I preached on Romans 1, 16 and 17, this is his main thesis for the whole book. Well, here you have, here you have it here in a very short statement, uh, justification by faith. Since we have, it's happened, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. And I talk, spent most of my time talking about, well, how can you know what that peace is? What, do, what, what does it look like? So that's still talking about justification by faith. Personally, here's how I interpret Romans. I think he develops this idea of the righteousness of God pretty much all the way through the book. He just uses different ways of explaining it. So today, when we talk about Adam and Christ, it's, it's still the same basic subject, but it's constantly being de developed as he explains it more and more. And as I said, justification is like the foundation of the house. And Jesus actually uses the, the, the building of a house in the Sermon on the Mount to illustrate the Christian life. So think of the Christian life as like a building that is being erected by God. And you need a foundation for that house, right? Most houses have foundations. Some don't, but most do. I did visit houses that are on stilts in the water. I suppose they have some kind of foundation. Uh, actually visited a church on the water once in Peru. So we sailed to church. Everything was on the water. I mean, literally on the water. Uh, kind of weird. And Cecil's just come back from Cambodia. Aren't you happy that Cecil's back? Yeah. Guess which church member's the happiest? All right, there you go. You got it. So she went on a two-week medical trip to... Cambodian. She started to show me some of the photos. Hopefully, she'll share some of them with you. Uh, most of them on that trip were not Christians, um, but, but believe me, God can still work in people's lives who are not Christians, right? And give them skills and talents to go to a country like that, uh, an impoverished country like that, and help them out in a medical way. All right, verse 12. 
Oh, one more thing. Notice, notice two things real quick. Verse 9, how much more? Get that little phrase in your head. In fact, I'm calling this sermon much more, much more. And then notice it in verse 10 as, as well of chapter 5, um, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through, or maybe a better translation is, in his life. So what we're being introduced to here, and it will be much more fully developed in chapter 6, is our union, our being in Christ, what that means. He's going to go into that much more, but it's being introduced in this part of Romans chapter 5. All right, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, who was that? Adam. Do you believe in Adam? I mean, not do you trust in Adam. I don't mean do you believe in that way. But do you really believe that he was a, 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 a historical figure when it mentions him in the book of Genesis? It's not, just, it's not just a parable. It's not a myth or anything like that. He really was flesh and blood. He really did live and was created by God. I do believe that the author of Genesis wants us to understand Adam that way. I believe Jesus and the Apostle Paul want us to understand Adam in a literal historical way. If we do not, then a passage like this, as far as I'm concerned, totally collapses. If we want to jettison, throw out any of the historical things in the Word of God, we got a whole, we're in a whole heap of trouble. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, verse 12. Now, what are we seeing here? There's a lot been read into verse 12. If ever you want a, a really heated discussion on original sin, Romans 5.12 is the one that you go to. What we can conclude from this, that there was one man who is not identified yet, Obviously, we believe that this is Adam for, because of the following verses. But there's one man that has introduced sin and death to the human race, to this world as we know it, right? Sin is a pretty sad, bad thing. And of course, Paul has spoken about that earlier in the book when I said chapters 1, chapters 2, most of chapters 3. It's all talking about sin and wickedness in some way, shape, or form. It is not a pretty picture. And when you look at sin in your own life, it's not attractive, right? Nothing good about it. It promises so much. Think of the Garden of Eden. Think of poor Eve there. It promises so much. And sin always takes away and never gives. But not just sin, as bad and as antagonistic as God is to that, but also the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. Just think of these little children. I read about a little boy yesterday, I believe it was, who got this very, very rare disease. Don't ask me the name, or I think it had some kind of code with this disease. But this little boy, as I understood this article, it showed you a photo of him, cute little baby, maybe two years of age or something like that, 
quite young, chubby cheeks, look quite healthy, and they say that this boy will grow up quite fairly normal, quite normal, and he will learn to talk, and he will learn to walk, and he probably will become a teenager. By the time he's 25, almost certainly he will die. And as he gets to those older years, what he has learned will start disappearing. So one day will come, almost guaranteed, unless God does some incredible miracle, that this man, this young man, will no longer talk, be able to talk, have the ability to talk, and not even able to walk. He will totally regress, and then he will die. Can you think of anything sadder than that? Better that he dies as a baby and doesn't have to go through all, all that. But that is the world of sin and death which you and I are part of. And any of you in the medical profession, you know it probably better than any of us do. These cute, gorgeous children, and I'm specifically mentioning children because with adults we always think, well, yeah, they have sinned. And though they don't deserve this, we still know, those of us that know the Bible, we still know that there is a payday for our sin. And then we get it all confused like they did in Jesus' day when they thought that all these bad things come upon us because we've been evil, and it's just somehow, some way, a little bit more palatable with an adult, but an innocent little child who has never sinned and has no conception of sin still dies. My question is, why? Why? Why do those who have never sinned still have this horrible thing called death coming upon them? Well, let's carry on. For before the law was given, verse 13, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. This is talking of Sinai the giving of the Ten Commandments. It probably, the law probably includes more than the Ten Commandments, all the requirements of God that were given in and around Sinai. What did they do? What is the purpose of the law? Why did God go take humanity, the Israelites, through that? To show what sin truly is like. See how bad sin is. Hopefully, you'll flee to Christ. That is one of the main reasons that God gave His law. Of course, there must have been some Jews that Paul knew, maybe himself when he was a practicing Pharisee, who believed they could get saved by their law-keeping. Not all Jews believe that. So it wasn't uniform exactly what they believed. But verse 13, law was, sin was still there before law was given, but it was not taken into account when there is no law. Um, we had, near where I live, there is a park, and we've seen that park being built, and then eventually a sign went up. We would just drive by that park, no reason to slow down, no reason to stop. They were just building a park. Nobody was going in, nobody was going out, it wasn't a functioning park. But one day they finished working on that park, so what did they do? They put a sign up. And they said, on such and such a date, 
we are going to have a stop sign here. Well, you all, you've already gone through two stop signs. You just want to get out on the road and get to the freeway. You don't need to go through a third stop sign, do you? Yes, you do. Somebody's decided, yes, you do. We're going to put a stop sign there. So they put the stop sign there, and everyone had been programmed never to stop at the park. So what did they do? They went sailing through the stop sign. So then they had to put red flags on the stop sign. And that got people's attention because they were not used to seeing red flags. And then they would stop. And maybe after two months, six months, I don't know how long it will take, most motorists will stop at that sign. Now, if you went through there when there was no sign, would there be a penalty? No. no. Because that law, in a sense, had not been revealed. But as soon as that sign goes up, whether you are used to doing it or not, there will be a penalty if you run that stop sign. And I tell you something, I'll guarantee there'll be a Rockland or a Roseville policeman hiding behind some bush to get someone. So maybe that helps a little bit as an illustration to understand verse um, 13. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. So now we have Adam specifically mentioned by name. And I want us to notice as we work through these verses, and I'll go through them fairly quickly, this comparison between what Adam brings to the table and what the Lord Jesus Christ brings to the table. Now, there must have been within Judaism, and I'm sure if I did some serious research, I could find things like this, there must have been discussion on the role of Adam, just as they would have a lot of discussion on Moses, Moses is our father, Abraham is our father, that Adam must have fitted in there somewhere. So here's Adam specifically mentioned. Verse 15. And Adam, it says in verse 14, was a, a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. So we're talking about sin, trespass, and now we're talking about gift. Justification by faith is all pure gift. This is really important to grasp this. Most of you do understand that much, I believe. It is pure gift. You cannot, by religion, by any good works... You can't do anything to squeeze through those pearly gates. Do we believe that? It's pretty basic. It's pretty fundamental. Billy Graham's preached it all his life. So if ever you've been to or heard some of Billy's evangelistic series, he may not use the word like justification or righteousness, but he will talk about forgiveness of sins, and he will talk about salvation a lot. So it's like Christianity 101. It's amazing that some don't get it. I've shared two individuals who have become pastors and progressed in the pastoral life, in the life of the church, and only got it after a long, long time, which is really sad. This is part of discipleship to understand these things. Verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass or the sin, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, and it should say there all, that's the implication, all died, not just physical death, but spiritual death. 
Which is the worst, physical or spiritual? Spiritual death, you see, right there in the garden. We say, well, Adam didn't die. Yes, he did. The process started. What's he doing? He's hiding himself in the bushes. He's covering himself over with fig leaves. That's fear of God. He never had that before. It was open communion. It was beautiful. It was right relationship before sin came in. As soon as sin came in, separation, alienation, fear, fright, hiding, using fig leaves to cover yourself up. Praise God that God came seeking, because that's what grace always does. Where are you, Adam? There's a gospel right there. Well, how much more? Here's that phrase that I told you to look for. How much more, the middle of verse 15, did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, not just for Adam, but for the whole human race. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, what a horrible phrase. Death reigned. Can you imagine anything so negative as death reigning with no hope? That's what Adam brought to us. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ? Who is it speaking? Who are these many? us. Let's say it. Let's say it loud. Let's say it confidently. Us who believe and trust in Jesus Christ. That there is an abundance of grace. It's not even that these are canceling each other out. In that sense, it's like Adam's here and Christ is way up there. Because what we're talking about here and maybe it'll get clear in the next few verses, is grace total, totally engulfing. You ever seen a volcano going off? At least I know you've seen it on TV. And that lava just bursts out. The flames just burst out, and they engulf everything. When they were giving those warnings on, uh, was it Mount St. Helens? They made it really clear, hey, this is what we think is going to happen. There's a good chance that this could happen. Well, there had been people living on the mountainside many, many years. That was their life. That was their existence. That's maybe all that they knew. And some of them, who have become quite famous, just said, I'll take my chances. And we've never even found their body. Just totally engulfed. That's what grace does to sin and to death totally overcome by the grace of God. And then verse 18, consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification. And then we get to chapter 8, which I'm pretty keen to get there, and probably we'll skip 6 and 7 to get to chapter 8 next week, it starts by saying, therefore, there is how much condemnation for those in Christ Jesus? No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. 
So here we kind of see the idea coming through. So the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as though the disobedience through the dis disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. I mentioned that earlier when I talked about Sinai. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, let me make it really clear here that all of this is through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, you and I see a man dying on a cross. We're never going to figure out what's really going on. We're absolutely going to interpret it the wrong way unless we have the Word of God. See the importance of the Bible? Doesn't matter if you're Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, I don't, I don't care how bright you are, how intelligent, you might even be on genius level, you would never be able to figure out the plan of God without his help. Just not going to happen. So praise God that we have these verses here and many others to help us understand uh, what Adam has done and what Christ has done. So let me quickly summarize. Two acts, two men first, Adam and who? Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. Say the, say the full name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Two men, Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, two acts. What was the first act of Adam? One sin, one trespass in the garden. What was the act of Christ? One righteous act on the cross. Two results. Condemnation, guilt, and death for Adam and his descendants. That's not fair, right? Have you ever thought that? That's not fair. I wasn't around when Adam took the fruit from Eve. Well, in a sense you were. In the sense that he is the representative for the human race. And now we have another representative called the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would say it is not fair that any of us are justified through faith. So fairness doesn't really cut it, though it's understandable to question this way. So Adam, condemnation, guilt, and death. Jesus Christ, justification, life, and kingship. Two differences in degree. Sin abounds. Yes, it does. Just look at this earth and the results of sin. But grace, now he doesn't say abounds. And this is kind of hard to translate maybe in the English. It really means he superabounds. As I said earlier, it's not canceling one another out. It's a superabundance of grace on the part of Jesus' death on the cross. Two differences in operation. One sin by Adam resulting in condemnation and the reign of death for everyone. Uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ, many sins put on Christ. Your sins and my sins put upon the Lord Jesus Christ. 
resulting in justification and reigning in life. Now, it would be logical to say for all, because we've said that with Adam. Condemnation comes on all. Surely justification comes on all. That would be the logical way to look at it. But really, Paul doesn't say that. He says it comes on the many. In other words, it's only those who trust and believe and have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, they may be many, hence I mentioned stars in the sky and grain on the seashore. From every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, a great multitude that no man can number. So yes, we believe in this large-hearted God with this superabundance, this engulfing, overflowing grace on His part, and yes, there could well be billions upon billions saved. Why not? But there also will be, of course, many, many who are not saved, and yet they could be saved. The opportunity is there. Two kings, sin is one king, and grace is the other. Sin reigns through death, grace reigns through righteousness. Two abundances on the part of Christ, of grace, and of the righteousness of Christ, verse 17. And finally, two contrasting status. And this is the way to get a hold of, if you really want to nail this stuff down in your mind and in your heart, if you really want to stand against the evil one, stand strong, try and get the idea of status in your head. I've mentioned it many, many times. I've used lots of illustrations, but the status in Adam is condemned people, slaves of sin via Adam, and then on the positive side, justified people reigning in life by Jesus Christ. It's really a no-brainer what side you want to be on. Maybe I should say to a group of believers, what side are you on? What side are you on? So if you're on the side of Christ, you've at some point in your life realize the sin in your life, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the law of God, to convict us of sin. Hopefully, most of us, at least some point in our life, hopefully recently, have been convicted of sin, right? Anybody here? Is it just Pastor Terry? My halo's slipping, and I admit it. Better to admit it than not admit it. You can't admit it when you're dead. We're not talking about second chances here. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. So, sin and death engulf under the grace of God. Which one is the most attractive? And what do you have to do? Do you have to do something really, really hard to be engulfed with this grace of God? No. The provision, the gift, has been given on Calvary's cross. Now, when I'm convicted of sin, and somehow, somewhere, and I know this can come uh, impact us in lots of different ways, but somehow, someway, I know that I can't remove that sin myself. I can't do it by good works. I can't do it by sincerely wanting it to go away. The deed has been done, and it's been done over and over and over again, and it's a good chance that I'm full of guilt, and I'm full of shame, because that's what really is the fruitage of a life of sin. 
and then somehow there's light at the end of the tunnel. Somehow there's hope because somebody tells me or I read my Bible, I find out about it, that Jesus died for just those kind of sins as mine. Now, I don't doubt for a minute that Judas came under conviction of sin. There's no way that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to wash your feet when you are about to betray your Lord and you not be convicted of something bad, right? But it didn't lead to repentance. So it's no, you can't stop there. You can't just stop at conviction. There's got to be a turning over, which is what we call repentance. There's got to be there's got to be an act, so to speak. Even though it's in your head, there's got to be a movement in your head to accept the Lord Jesus Christ. The gift is not rammed down your throat. We do not believe in universalism that everyone is justified until they reject Jesus Christ. At least I don't believe that. So the gift, the, the offering is there. The option is there. Will you grasp it? That's faith. That's trust. And when you do, you're in. You might still, like John Newton, the slave trader, be struggling with conviction of sin for a long time, but you're in. That's the most important thing. And, as, and that's why I mentioned that text earlier in verses 9 or 10, in or through his life. It's not just some legal fiction here that God declares you righteous. He does indeed do that, which is glorious, glorious, glorious. But it's more than that. Death on one side, life. Jesus says abundant life, a quality of life you can get nowhere else becomes yours. Usually the way we talk about that is the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. There's other ways of talking about it. Jesus talks about being born again, being born of the Spirit, being born from above. There's different ways. But that life of God comes into you. Uh, with a Spanish this morning, I was speaking to them about this, and I, taught, I ended my sermon this way. Maybe I'll end this one this way. That somebody comes to you. Now, you're a city guy like me. You know nothing about soil. You know nothing about seeds. You know nothing about plants. You've never played on grass. What's grass? If we had grass, it would be artificial grass. So he comes along and he puts the seed in your hand and he says there's tremendous potential for life in that seed. So you look at the seed and it's small. It's tiny. If you put it, took a knife and cut it open, it like it would probably just disappear down, down the grid, down the... Down the in the dirt, they would just go away. But somehow you believe enough to plant that in the soil. Maybe it needs a little bit of water. And if that seed gets what its environment, from its environment what it needs, whether it be water, sunlight, whatever it might be, that seed will grow, right? Hopefully. It will grow. Every illustration has its weakness. But you know that they found seeds in Egypt. In Egypt. Thousands of years old. And planted them. And they've grown. After two or three thousand years. Do you think God can't raise us from the dead? 
So you look at that seed and you wait day after day after day and you have no background of anything growing and maybe your faith starts getting a bit weak and then you see just some little thing popping up there. And yes, it's small and yes, it's tiny, but I think it's actually green. And everything is cool that's green today. Have you noticed that? Even Larry's shirt is cool today. He has a green shirt on. The Irishman would love you. So... It starts to grow, and it grows, and it grows. How far can it grow? Well, the Scriptures actually use and likens the believer, the Christian, the one who trusts in God, to a cedar of Lebanon. Or maybe in our language, we would say a giant sequoia today. There is no limitation. We should never put any limitations on ourselves or anybody else, because if the life of God is in the soul of man. Nothing but good can come of it. Let's not... Yes, there's a time for self-examination. I think in some Adventist quarters, though, we go uh, spend too long navel-gazing. The focus in this passage is really not on Adam because everything seems so negative there. Sin, death, destruction, separation. It's on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so your spiritual strength, your growth, of the growth of that plant is going to be in proportion to as you lay your focus on Him. He is, in this illustration, He is like the sunshine. He is the rain. He is what you need to grow. Hence, within the Seventh-day Adventist church uh, culture, uh, one individual said, it is really good, really good, to spend a thoughtful hour each day. That's what we're doing with Paul now, in his own unique way of talking about the cross. Contemplating the life of Christ, especially those scenes around the cross. Don't we have a song at the cross, at the cross? We lay everything down there, and that's where we are inspired, that's where we are energized, and that's where life comes from. Much more superabundance of grace. Let's pray. Gracious God, we're just scratching the surface of the amazing things that you did for us when you died for the human race. And I know we'll spend eternity studying these things, but you give them to us, some of them in your word, to stretch our minds, stretch our hearts, to challenge us, and Lord, to ultimately, over and over again, fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. Greater love is no man that a man lays down his life for his friends. Jesus says, you're no longer enemies. That was your old status. I call you friends. That is your new status. Sons and daughters, children of the heavenly King. Come back soon, Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to stay faithful to you, to encourage one another, to build one another up in the faith. And thank you for the much more of Romans 5. In Christ's name, amen.